My name is Joshua Smith, and I'm a member of Flint Hills Bible Church, and my wife and I are also two of your uh, missionaries. So we provide a leadership throughout <clears throat> Latin America with the mission organization Reach Global. And this, uh, I'm, I'm entering into a particularly full season of ministry travel. Appreciate your, your prayers and encouragement. Uh, Last month, I spent nine days in two different states in Brazil, uh, meeting with uh, local partners and our leaders throughout Latin America. Um, and we saw some really neat things are, are going on. Uh, in the city of Rio de Janeiro, we're seeing significant work among both the richest of the rich uh, through the international church there and also through really in significant gospel efforts in the favelas, which are reaching the poorest of the poor. Some really incredible gospel leaders who are living in those environments and seeing people's lives transformed. Uh, we're also seeing in the city of Porto Alegre, uh, which is about, has about a million people in southern Brazil and has 2% evangelical. Uh, we're partnering with our missionary staff and some local leaders to uh, begin a church plant in that city where so many few people know Jesus. We're also seeing an opportunity to partner with uh, believers from uh, three different countries to potentially begin a brand new work in Montevideo, uh, which is the capital of Uruguay and is one of the least reached and most secular cities and countries in all of the Americas. Uh, this Wednesday, Naomi and I actually fly uh, to Costa Rica to visit two different cities and to meet with the regional training team that I help lead. One of the primary challenges we see in Latin America right now is that we are lacking a generation of trained leaders, uh, that local churches and missionaries have, in many respects, failed to adequately equip the next generation of leaders. And so while our pastors are aging and retiring and dying, we are not seeing the next generation raised up sufficiently. And so we're trying to figure out how do we better come alongside uh, believers throughout Latin America to make sure that we have men and women who are faithfully communicating the Word of God in their context and faithful pastors who can shepherd their people to a fuller understanding of the richness of Jesus. And then right after coming back from Costa Rica on Monday, uh, our pastor from Mexico City, David, and his wife, Carla Sarmiento, they'll be actually visiting us for about four days um, as they raise support and prepare to move to Paris, France as church planters and missionaries to a, a mega city that has less than 2% uh, evangelical Believers. And I'm hoping to have a gathering at some point that week where maybe some of you could join us and hear more about their ministry. Uh, and then right after that, uh, Naomi and I, and actually the whole family, uh, we're going to be spending a, a full month in Mexico City, Mexico, where we served for 10 years in order to reconnect with some of our believing and non-believing relationships uh, Naomi will be offering a course to women who have roles of teaching other women and children and youth on how to study and teach the Bible. Uh, I'll be preaching a few times and we'll also be offering a workshop on how to uh, live out and communicate the gospel in the context of everyday life. And, and, and so that, that workshop on, on evangelism is, is actually uh, has me thinking about evangelism. And that's what I'd like to share with all of you this morning. Uh, and, and so while that workshop is going to be more focused on the, kind of the, the practical ins and outs of how to share the gospel in daily life, this morning I'd like to focus on something even more fundamental about the gospel. And I would like to share with you three truths about evangelism that have become pretty essential to my understanding of gospel ministry. 
Uh, and just so you know, they're not new truths, and they may not even be particularly surprising truths. But if we have ears to hear this morning, they may be just the truths that we need right now in order to have the kind of gospel impact that we hope to have in our own communities, whether that's here in Emporia or Lebo or Chase County or somewhere else. And they may also be the very truths that you need, that you're going to need to persevere in evangelism and faithful gospel witness, both during times of harvest and during times of severe drought. Serving our King with courage and hope, and even with joy in this messy thing that we call life. And if some of you uh, do not yet follow Jesus, you may even find that by the time you finish this message, that you do. That would be my greatest hope for you. So please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. I don't know if you guys know this, uh, but a few months ago, uh, some of our teenagers, our high schoolers from Flint Bible Church, they actually helped launch a Wednesday morning campus Bible study at Emporia High School. They did that because they have a desire to encourage and strengthen the believers who are there on campus and to give those who don't yet know Jesus an opportunity to see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory and power so that they might actually come to know him and find hope in him. This Bible study is entirely their initiative. It is entirely student-run. And they're studying Mark. Uh, So in some ways, this message is especially for them. And I hope that they are encouraged by it. And as the rest of us try to follow their example of risking themselves for the gospel, I hope that it will encourage us as well. So this morning we're going to be looking at Mark 4 and Jesus' three different parables of the seed. So we'll look at three different parables. And I want to be clear, I am not going to try to teach everything about these parables this morning. But I would like to highlight three particular gospel truths that we find in them. So let me go ahead and read them and then we'll unpack them one by one. We're starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then going on to verse 13, it says, 
And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The second parable is in verse 26, and it says this. And he, Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, Because the harvest has come. The third parable is in verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Let me pray. Father, may you give us ears to hear your word this morning, that we might be transformed by it, we might be empowered by it, and that we might live out the goodness of your gospel more fully as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first parable at the beginning of chapter 4 tells us this. It tells us that we need to sow the word. We need to sow the word. This parable presents a man in a field, right? And he is sowing and sowing and sowing. And the the seed that he is sowing is explicitly identified as the word in 4.14. It says, the sower sows the word. In fact, eight times in this passage, it refers to the seed as the word. And that repetition means that we should pay attention, that it matters. It's a key to understanding what Jesus is trying to say. So the sower is sowing the word, but what is the word, right? What is the content of the word? And I think earlier in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has actually told us what the content was. Look at Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 through 15. Mark 1, 14 through 15. 
where we find a summary of the word that Jesus was preaching. It says this in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So what is the gospel of God? What was the message that Jesus was specifically proclaiming? We find it in verse 15. And he was saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is, in summary form, the gospel word that Jesus was sowing. And there's really three parts to this message. First, he says, the time has been fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. And, and what does that mean, right? What it means is this. What Jesus is saying is that he is the fulfillment. He is the culmination of human history. The time has been fulfilled in him. All of history from Genesis 1-1 to that moment had reached its purpose and culmination in the coming of Jesus. The second part says the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does that mean? It means that the king has come. It means that the king was present. Jesus. And that's why when, when you go through the gospel of Mark, wherever you find Jesus, in his shadow, you get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Where sins are forgiven and the marginalized are drawn near and sickness is healed. And all that wickedness has undone in our world is finally made right. Because the king has come. That was the gospel message. That was the word that Jesus came to proclaim. That Jesus is the culmination of human history. And that he is the promised king. Promised since Genesis 3. The one who would crush the serpent's Head and save us from our sins. And then there's a third part. This third part is really how we should respond to this message that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. We respond to the message by repenting, by turning from our sin and our foolish ways of life and embracing Jesus, the one who was to come. The one who now has come. And then in Mark 1 through 3, the chapters right before our passage, we find a ton more about this amazing king. It tells us that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That he has authority to forgive sin, to heal disease, to cast out demons. And it tells us that he didn't come for the righteous, but he came for sinners like you and me. That's good news, right? And it tells us that right before our passage in chapter 3, at the very end, it tells us that he came to create a new family. Not based on the blood of your parents, but that's based on a shared commitment to the living God. Something that supersedes race or family ties. And that makes us brothers and sisters. And then a little later in Mark 10, verse 45, it tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, our king has come to redeem and to save. That is the good news of the gospel word. That is the message that we are called to sow. Proclaiming the glory and power and beauty and saving goodness of our king. And calling on all people everywhere to repent and believe. This isn't a minor point about the content of the message of the word. Because there are a lot of things that we can sow. We can sow psychology or personal opinion. We can sow politics or self-help. We can even sow legalism or good old-fashioned religion. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to sow what? This gospel word. This gospel message. And we're called to sow this gospel message because it is the only thing capable of transforming our hearts. And if the gospel can transform my heart... That also means that it can therefore transform my family and my neighborhood and my city and my country and maybe even our world. If it's good news for me, it's good news for everyone. So, so the content of what we must sow is the gospel word. But there's something else in this parable that stands out to me. It's, it's how we should sow the word. Did you guys notice that the sower wasn't particularly efficient or precise? Right? He just sows the word over there on the rocks and he sows some on the ground and sows some among the seeds and sows some on the good soil. He just throws it everywhere. And I want you to know, honestly, I don't really like that. There's a part of me that, that doesn't like that. So if you know me very well, if you ever ministered alongside me, I, I tend to be a, a strategic thinker. I like to think about how we can engage in life and ministry in the most effective way possible. It's partly what I do with missionary teams and national pastors. I help them think through strategically how can we engage our communities better. Because I know that some ways are better than others. I also know there's a limited amount of resources. We have limited time. We have limited people. So let's be as strategic as possible. But this text seems to reveal something different about the heart of God and the work of the kingdom. Whereas we, especially as Americans, whereas we are overly concerned with effectiveness and efficiency, I think God is far more concerned with generosity and grace. You see, I don't think that our problem is that we don't sow strategically. I think our problem is that we do not sow generously. We think too much, we plan too hard, we attend too many classes, but we give far too little. But the gospel calls us to sow, to broadly, deeply, recklessly, generously sow. Because God is glorified in the fertile soil, but he is also glorified along the path 
and in the thorns and among the rocks. His seed is never wasted. It always accomplishes his purposes. It is our privilege and glory to sow the seed. Anywhere and everywhere. It is God's glory and privilege to grow the seed anywhere and everywhere that he sees fit. Now somebody could argue that that is wasteful. That that would be inefficient. But what if God is not particularly concerned about efficiency? And what if he doesn't really care about being wasteful? At least not in the way that we tend to think about it. What if he's more concerned with sowing the seed of the kingdom broadly, deeply, recklessly, generously? What if he cast the seed of the kingdom on the fertile soil, but he also willfully casts it upon the path where it will be stolen by the devil, and among the thorns where it will be choked out, and among the rocks where it cannot take root. But is that really wasteful? Is it wasteful to seek after a wayward child even if she never comes back? Is it wasteful to speak of the glory of God to our dying neighbor, even if he never believes? Is it wasteful to pour out our blood in love and sacrifice for our enemies, even if they'll just hurt us again? No, that is not wasteful. There is a glory in the sowing, no matter where it lands and no matter what it produces. Just like the sower in this parable, our God, he sows and he sows and he sows. And so must we. Some of it will be sown on the path and it will be stolen away by the devil. He tells us that some will fall among the rocks and give the appearance of growth only to break our hearts because it has no root. And some will fall among the thorns. But it'll grow, and then it will be choked out by the desires of our world. But some of it will fall on good soil. As is evidenced by this baptismal tank right here, right? As is Proven by many of you right here who are sitting and listening who have come to know Jesus. So, so God calls us to sow the word and to do it generously. But what he does not tell us to do is to prejudge who will accept it and who will reject it. That is not your job. It is not your job to judge how you think people will receive the word. It's not our job to say yes for people. It's not our job to say no for people. It is our job simply to give it. And yes, we do need good strategies and good plans. Even Jesus and Paul had strategies and plans. But more than anything, we just need to open our mouths. Speak the truth in love. Tell people about the incredible mercy that we have found in Jesus. Jesus. 
And then God will do whatever he chooses to do. See, too often we're afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. Or we're concerned that we just don't know enough. Or it's not exactly the right moment. But brothers and sisters, we don't have to be afraid. We just need to speak. We just need to speak. And it's really not that complicated. You see, I I like to talk about my wife and kids. Do you know why? Because I think they're awesome. Right? Because my wife and kids are amazing. So I talk about them. I love them. I talk about my wife and kids because they have transformed my life. And if you want to really know me, you need to get to know them. And you'll be better for it. When I was 15, I embraced the idolatries of my heart. And it ruined me. It destroyed me. And when I cried out to God, he was so kind to graciously reach down and to transform my life and to forgive me and to wash me clean and to make me new and to give me new life. And I love him for it. I love him for it. And so for the past 31 years of my life, I've tried imperfectly to tell people about him. So I tend to be a strategy guy, but this morning I don't want to be the strategy guy. I want to encourage you to just love Jesus. And as you love him, you will talk about him. As you talk about him, God will do whatever he wants to do. And sometimes that means he will bring transformative, new, eternal life into the life of the hearer. So the first gospel truth we find is that we need to sow the word and we need to do it generously. Secondly, we find that it's God who grows the word. God grows the word. Let me read Mark 4, verses 26 through 29. And he, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We are called to sow the word, but only God can actually grow the word. It's a mystery how it grows. It can take time, but it will grow. The, the, the sower here, he sows the word, and then what does he do? He goes to sleep, and he gets up, and he goes to sleep, and he gets up, and the seed grows, and he doesn't know how. But he knows that it will. He doesn't understand the mechanisms, but he knows that seed properly sown will tend to grow into whatever that seed is. He, he knows that if you want apples, what do you have to sow? Apple seeds. If you want wheat, what do you have to sow? Wheat. If you want corn, come on people, you guys do this for a living. I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) If we want to see gospel fruit, what do we sow? 
We sow the gospel word. That's our job. And then God, mysteriously, whenever and however he wants, he causes the growth. And when he does, we should be ready to act. I mentioned earlier that our our friend, our pastor from Mexico, David Sarmiento, is is coming uh, next week. And David grew up in a Christian family. His church was a, a bit messy. But somewhere in there, as a a child, as a young man, uh, people shared with him the seed of the gospel. And and he came to know Christ. And so when Naomi and I met him, he he was a believer, but they were sort of just church attenders. They weren't doing a whole lot more at that point. And I had the opportunity to begin investing in David. And God began to do this really amazing work in his life. In him and through him. This incredible gospel fruit. So he eventually became the the primary teaching pastor of our church in Mexico City. They actually asked him to quit his job as an an architect and become their pastor. He is so filled with wisdom and maturity. And now that same church is sending him to Paris, France, to be an evangelist and discipler and church planter in one of the least reached megacities in our world. Now, I have invested in a lot of young men over the years. And most of them do not become David. Why him and not them? I don't know. I've shared the gospel with a lot of people. And most of them don't come to know Christ. So why these people and not these people? I have no idea. Why did God choose me? And others do not yet yet know him. I don't know. But I am really glad that he did. Because I need him. At a practical level, that means that we can rest in our God. He is working. And he will work. Just like this power behind the seed as it grows into a harvest. As many of you know, we served for 10 years in Mexico City and we saw an incredible harvest. Incredible harvest. We served for eight years in northern Spain and saw almost nothing. Why here and not there? I don't know. What I do know is this. As we began to see fruit in Mexico City, churches planters and people come to know Christ and leaders raised up, one of our Mexican partners told us this. They said, God is answering the prayers of those who came before us. Is that a powerful thing? God was answering the prayers of those who came before us. Others prayed, and we got to reap the fruit. They didn't see the fruit, but we got to. That's what God does. He takes a seed, and at his time, in his way, he produces a harvest. And that leads us to our third gospel truth. We must sow the word. God grows the word. And the fruit of that word will be glorious. It will be glorious. Look at Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. It says this. 
And he, Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, for any of you who are botanists or science nerds, all right, I know the mustard seed is not the smallest seed that exists, okay? And I think Jesus knew that too. That's not his point. His point is that in common use, this tiny seed, which is commonly known by his listeners, when it was sown, what it produced was amazing growth. This insignificant seed would become a bush. And in a similar way, the gospel message may not have originally looked like much. Right? A carpenter from Nazareth with a ragtag group of about a dozen fishermen, small businessmen, at least one Roman IRS agent, and then a group of pretty marginalized women. Did not look like much. But it would end up shaping our entire world, right? Transforming the lives of billions. That's what the seed of the kingdom does. A tiny seed unexpectedly growing into an enormous bush. But there's something more to this parable that's easily missed. The gospel seed will not just produce something big. According to this parable, it will produce something glorious. Something glorious. And we know that because of the words at the end of 32 where it says, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, why does that matter? We could easily read this and overlook this little detail because it sounds like it's just a creative illustration, right? To say how big the bush is. Big enough, the birds can sleep in its branches. But this is not just a creative illustration. It is the repetition of a phrase that we find at least three times in the Old Testament. So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And every time we find this phrase in the Old Testament, it's not referring to birds. Do you know what it's referring to? Kingdoms. It's referring to kingdoms. In Daniel 4.12, it is used to describe the greatness of the Babylonian kingdom. In Ezekiel 31.6, it's used to describe the greatness of the Assyrian kingdom. And in Ezekiel 17.23, it is used to describe the coming kingdom of God. And here I believe Jesus is using it in exactly the same way. What started out as this apparently insignificant movement in the backwaters of Israel. In an oppressed nation under Roman Empire. It would grow to become a kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus. In which the nations will find their rest. It's glorious. Now, no matter 
how we work out the details of the book of Revelation or the chronology of the end times, one thing in the Bible is clear, really, really clear. Jesus wins. So if you study Revelation, trying to figure out how it all works together, let me know what you think. But what you need to walk away with is the simple truth that Jesus wins. Whether or not the world accepts you or rejects you, guess what? Jesus wins. Whether people respond to your evangelistic efforts or they mock you because of them, Jesus wins. Wherever Jesus is, is the right side of history. And he invites all people, black and white and brown, even redheads. <laughs> he invites the rich and the poor, farmers and Wall Street traders, Republicans and Democrats, trans, gay, and straight. He invites them all. He commands them all to come to him, to embrace him, because the king has come, and he is making all things right. Just like Jesus said in Mark 1.15, we must repent and believe the gospel. We must turn from our sins and be restored in Jesus. Because of Jesus, because of his victory over death on the cross, we can have victory over death as well. He wins, and he wins for us. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that good news is for everyone, everywhere. So, do not be embarrassed by the good news of the gospel. And do not lose hope as you share the good news of the gospel. We sow the word. God grows the word. And what he will do with that word is glorious. Now and forever. Beyond our wildest dreams and imagination. He is making all things right. Let me pray. Father, we pray for our friends and coworkers and fellow students and family members and enemies who do not yet know you. Father, may your word be sown deeply into their hearts and may it produce an abundant harvest. May you bring life. And if anyone does not yet know you right now, Father, may they put their trust in Jesus, that they too might know the goodness of the gospel and the power and grace of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.